0: At this time, we are going to be dismissing our Building Blocks kids uh, with their teachers. So parents who have young children with you, you can uh, meet our teachers in the back of the room and they'll lead uh, all of our boys and girls to our Building Blocks children's service today. Uh, just a reminder, parents, please pick up your kids in person for them to be dismissed after Sunday celebration and do that right afterwards uh, so that our Building Blocks teachers can come back as well. Uh, at this time, Uh, At this time, we're going to be hearing God's word together, but before we begin, let me just share a couple important notes. Uh, First, the sermon notes and manuscripts are available on our website. Just go to jakarta.hmcc.net to help you follow along. And second and lastly, let's put aside any distractions as best as we can so that we can give our hearts and our attention fully to God's word. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, Let me just pray for us. Uh, once again, as we are about to hear God's word. God, you are our God, we are your people. So as you speak to us through your word uh, today, give us hearts to, to hear and understand, minds to, uh, to not just have, to receive what you have to say, and hearts that are willing to respond in, in trust, in worship, in obedience, in whatever it is that you call us to, Lord. We love you, we thank you. We pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name, amen. Uh, We are currently in part 31 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're studying the gospel account of Luke from chapters 4 through 9, which record Jesus' public ministry in the area of Galilee. So let's get right into today's sermon. It's called Jesus and the Faithless. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where it was difficult to believe someone? Have you ever been in a situation where it was difficult to believe someone? And as you think about that question for yourself, Let me tell you a time when it was really hard for my wife, Tina, to believe me. So after our first son was born, uh, Tina and I were greatly helped by her mom and sister who came to Indonesia from the U.S. for two weeks to help us with this new transition and becoming parents for the very first time. It was a huge help. We don't know how we would have gotten through those two weeks without their help. And the day after they left... Tina and I were sitting in front of each other, uh, reading our Bibles uh, at our dining table, and then I saw her start uh, tearing up. So I thought to myself, she must be convicted by something in God's word. So I don't want to interrupt what God might be doing in her right now, so I'm not going to say anything. And then she got up and went into our bedroom and closed the door. So I thought to myself, wow! Wow! God must really be working in her right now, that she wants to be alone with God right now. And then to my total surprise, a few minutes later, Tina opened the door and told me that she was so upset with me. She said something like, did you not see me crying? Why didn't you say anything? You are either totally unaware or you really don't care. And I told her, there's a third option here. I was aware, and I did what I did because I care. And then I began to tell her how I interpreted the whole situation. And as Jesus, uh, sorry, <laughs> as Tina, my wife, uh, listened to me, uh, she told me later that every part of her being, as I was sharing how I saw the whole situation and why I did what I did, every part of her felt like I was lying what I was telling her was completely out of her paradigm. And she thought to herself, nobody really thinks like that. (laughs) Like, he must be lying. And in that moment, it was incredibly difficult for her to believe me. But thankfully, by God's grace, she did. And it's true, I actually do really (laughs) think like that from time to time. And God is using Tina to refine my thinking. You know, I'm sure all of us have had experiences like this. There are times when every part of who we are thinks and feels as if another person is trying to hurt us by their words and actions, when ironically, oftentimes, they're doing all they can to care for us and to be helpful. But we don't just experience this with one another, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I am positive that if you haven't already experienced this in your relationship with him, you will at some point. There are times when everything in you tells you that Jesus isn't trustworthy, that I can't believe him, that he doesn't care, that he's abandoned me, that he won't provide, that he's not in control, that he's trying to hurt me. We know those things are not true about Jesus. Yet that's the real struggle that we feel in in those moments. In our worser moments, we end up believing our feelings and circumstances rather than Jesus. But in our better moments, we come to our senses and remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we choose to believe in him, even when it's difficult to believe. And that's what we'll look at more today. So the one thing for today is believe in Jesus, even when it's difficult to believe. Believe in Jesus, even when it's difficult to believe. If you have your Bibles, can you turn to Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 37 to 45. And just to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage, last week we saw how Jesus took three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain to pray. And that's where they saw Jesus transfigured, where he was now radiating the blinding light of God's glory, and where he was talking with the glorified Moses and Elijah about the salvation that he would soon accomplish in Jerusalem. And the climax of that passage was God the Father speaking to Peter, John, and James about Jesus, saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. It says this. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, "Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in three parts. First, the Desperate Father, verses 37 to 40. Second, the Deficient Disciples, verses uh, 41 to the beginning of verse 43. And then third, the Difficult Truth, verse, the second part of verse 43 to verse 45. And throughout these three parts, we'll continue to come back to this theme of belief and unbelief, or faith and faithlessness. So first, the Desperate Father. Again, verses 37 to 40 say this. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So Peter, James, and John had just had this literal mountaintop experience with Jesus, where they saw him in all of his transfigured glory. But now, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, they enter back into the brokenness of our world. Look at verses 38 to 39. This is a picture of immense suffering in a broken world. A desperate father emerges from the great crowd, and he begins to beg Jesus to look at his son who is possessed and tormented by a demon. This account is also found in Matthew and Mark. So when we pull the accounts together, we get a graphic and terrible picture of how tormented this man's son is. The demon seizes the sun, and he suddenly cries out or screams. The spirit throws him to the ground in convulsions, and he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, stiff as a board. The demon often casts him into fire and into water, so he probably had terrible burns and scars. And even more, the spirit, had made, him a, uh, the spirit made him deaf and mute whenever it possessed him, so he could not hear or speak to anyone. And the demon will hardly leave him meaning that he is almost constantly in this state. And on top of all that, this is the father's only child. And so as the father observes all that's happening to his son, he says that the spirit shatters him, which literally means that it is crushing him together, or he's being crushed or broken into pieces. But all this is not just affecting the son, the father is also being shattered, crushed, and broken as he's witnessing all this happen to his beloved only child. Think how heart-wrenching all of this must have been for the father. So we see a sharp contrast in verse 37 between the experience of Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and the experience of life below the mountain. On the mountaintop, they clearly saw Jesus in all his glory, There was no struggle with the forces of darkness and demons amidst Jesus' blinding light of heavenly glory. They clearly recognized that they were in the presence of God and that Jesus is the Son of God. This was a brief glimpse of that eternal day when faith will give way to sight, and we all long for that day. But the reality is that we do not yet live in that world to come. We live in the world below the Mount of Transfiguration, where we are still plagued by a world broken by sin. Still, what's comforting is the fact that Jesus also came down the mountain. He did not leave with the glorified Moses and Elijah when they left, but he stayed with his babbling and fearful disciples. And he came down from the mountain with them to enter back into the realities of this broken world. No matter what brokenness or difficulties that you're going through right now, If you're a follower of Christ, know that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you, but he is with you to the end of the age. Though he is the Lord God who created all things and is wrapped in his glorious light, he willingly entered into the darkness of our broken world to push back the effects of sin and demons and to ultimately conquer them in his own death and resurrection. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus chose not to set up a tent and live on the Mount of Transfiguration but he chose to come down the mountain to live with us where we live in the brokenness of our world so that we may have him as our living hope in all the everyday trials that we face. Going back, in the midst of this heart-wrenching situation, we also see evidence of this desperate father's faith. In Mark's account, we know that the father intended to bring his son to Jesus, Evidently, he believed that Jesus could heal his son. But since Jesus was still away with Peter, James, and John on the mountain, he settled for bringing his son to Jesus' disciples. And verse 40 says that the father begged Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon. You know, I don't know what your picture of begging is, but I think of a man on his knees, grasping the feet of Jesus' disciples, with his head to the floor, pleading with loud cries and tears running down his cheeks. And for this man to do this publicly before the crowds shows how much embarrassment he was willing to endure for the sake of even a glimmer of hope that his son might be healed. Think to yourself, would you embarrass yourself in public like this if you didn't believe it would help at all? Would you drop to the floor and cause a scene begging for help from someone if you didn't believe that person could really help? The desperate father had faith. But the rest of verse 40 leaves the father disappointed, to say the least. He begged and begged, and Jesus' disciples tried and tried. But in the end, they could not cast out the demon. You know, we're not entirely sure how this entire scene played out, You know, perhaps some of the apostles, one at a time, stepped up to try to cast out the demon, but when one failed to do so, the next apostle stepped up and tried to do so, only to fail again. And with each successive failure, you can almost feel the Father's hope and faith deflating as discouragement and disappointment begin to sink in. They can't do it. They can't do it. It's not going to happen. We all know what it's like to get our hopes up for something or someone, only to be disappointed. And what makes it even harder to bear is when we're disappointed by Jesus' disciples. Now, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I wonder how much of that has to do with what you've seen and experienced from those who identify themselves as Jesus' disciples. Now, you thought that followers of Jesus would be more loving, more honest, more generous, more hardworking, more faithful, but you've unfortunately had experiences with Christians who come off as selfish, deceptive, stingy, who do the bare minimum required of them, who don't do what they say. And if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, then you, ha- you want no part in Christ. And if that's you, I'm so sorry that's, that's been your experience with Christians. You know, even here, the apostles, those who live life closely, the closest with Jesus, Even they didn't live up to the standard of Christ. And it was so disappointing to this desperate father. But as we'll see later in how Jesus responds to his disciples, that's not how a Christian should live. Christians are sinners just as much as anyone. And none of us is saved from our sin by our good works. Rather, we are saved by trusting in the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But as we follow Jesus we will become progressively more and more like Christ as we live a life of constant, continual repentance and faith in him. Jesus will make us more and more like him. And I pray that as you get to know members of our church, though we will disappoint you at times, my hope is that you would see our progress in becoming more and more like Christ and that you would be drawn more and more towards Christ yourself. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, then you probably also know what it's like to be disappointed by other disciples of Jesus, especially in the church. Perhaps you've tried to get to know others in the church, but you didn't feel like it was reciprocated. Perhaps you thought more members would reach out to you. Perhaps a brother said something that really hurt you. Perhaps a sister didn't do something that you expected them to do. And if that's what living life with other disciples of Christ is like, then you want no part in Christ's church. If that's you, again, I'm so sorry that's been your experience with fellow Christians in the church. The sad reality is that we will all disappoint one another at times, even as we are imperfectly trying to follow Jesus. We don't want to disappoint. We don't want to hurt each other, but it's going to happen. I know that I have disappointed people in our church. And I know that if you're a member of our church, you have disappointed fellow members in our church. We all have. But I pray that none of us would give up on Christ and how he has promised to work in his church, that he is sanctifying us with his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus has promised to do that. He is doing that but I understand that that's not easy to believe, especially when we feel hurt by fellow disciples of Christ. You know, I've shared before that I know what it's like to be hurt by people in the church. People have lied to me, they've cursed at me, they've slandered me, they've thought the worst of me even when I was doing my very best to love and care for them in the way that I knew how. I know what it's like to be hurt in the church, but at the same time, I also see glimpses of Christ continuing to make good on his promise to sanctify his church. I thank God for people confessing their sins to one another and allowing others to be part of the process of repentance. I thank God for testimonies like we just heard before this sermon of God powerfully working in the lives of our sister. I thank God for people seeking counsel from one another about how to obey God in difficult circumstances. I thank God for tangibly expressing care and appreciation to one another through the very people here. I thank God for people pursuing and praying for one another, especially when we're going through difficult times. I've experienced incredible pain in our church at the hands of Christ's disciples, but I've also experienced incredible encouragement in our church at the hands of Christ's disciples. So, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, As we continue to get to know members of our church and persevere in relationships with one another, though we will disappoint each other at times, I pray that we would see our overall progress in becoming more and more like Christ as he is at work in us, and that we also would be drawn more towards Christ together. Going back to the desperate father, despite the terrible state of his son, and despite experiencing great disappointment from Jesus' disciples, he still evidences persevering faith in Jesus. You know, at times it hurts to trust. And when something hurts, you don't want to put yourself through it again. This father had begged Jesus' disciples to do something for his son, but they all failed. But rather than walking away disappointed and bitter. He continues to believe that Jesus can do something. So when he sees Jesus come down the mountain, what does he do? Verse 38 shows that he's doing the exact same thing in front of Jesus that just left him embarrassed and disappointed when he did it in front of Jesus' disciples. In the midst of the great crowd, he's back on his face begging Jesus to look at his son, to do something for him. But from Mark's parallel account, we know that the father's faith was not without fault. He said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. So the father didn't have flawless faith. He didn't have perfect faith, but he had persistent faith. His faith was still defective. It was belief mixed with unbelief. It was faith mixed with faithlessness. But it was still faith nonetheless. It was a faith that would not give in to doubts and disappointments. It was a faith that begged Jesus not only to heal his son, but to help his faith. You know, the reality is that none of us have flawless faith. We all have a mixture of belief and unbelief. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ yet... Perhaps your unbelief extends to the person of Christ. Is Jesus really God? And did he really die and resurrect for the forgiveness of sins for all who repent and believe in him? But at the same same time, even as we're struggling with that question, you're here today listening to God's word. So perhaps there's a seed of faith in you that believes something about God, at least enough for you to be sitting where you are right now. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, Perhaps we don't struggle to believe that Jesus is God and that he died and resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins. But perhaps your unbelief extends to the promises of God. Are they really true, even when I don't feel like they're true? Perhaps you struggle to believe that God works all things for the good of those who love him, especially when you endure suffering. Perhaps you struggle to believe that Jesus is gentle and lonely, uh, lowly and that he alone gives rest to your soul especially when you feel overwhelmed with work. Perhaps you struggle to believe that Jesus' grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in your weakness, especially when your weaknesses are made known to others. No matter who we are, none of us have flawless faith. So just like the desperate father, may we learn to cry out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. As believers in Jesus Christ, don't believe your momentary experiences or fickle feelings. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Rather, hold fast the confession, the confession of our hope in Jesus Christ without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You don't need flawless faith, but just persistent faith. You don't need to run. Crawling will do. Just don't stop taking your eyes off Jesus. Jesus. And don't stop moving towards him. Keep going, however slow it is, towards him. In our darkest valleys, may we not wander in our own aimless directions, thinking that we know better, only to die in that valley, going around in circles but really going nowhere. But may we stick close to our good shepherd who will protect us and who has promised to bring us through to the other side. So first, the desperate father. And second... The deficient disciples. Verse 41 says this. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. At first glance, what Jesus says here is a bit startling, but the key is understanding who Jesus is referring to here. Is Jesus referring to the desperate father when he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation? No. The father has done exactly what he ought to have done. In his disappointments and doubt, he came to Jesus, and he persistently trusted in Jesus. In many ways, the desperate father is held out as a model of faith for us. Perhaps Jesus is referring to the unbelieving in the crowd, or even more broadly to the unbelieving in that generation. But more likely, most likely, Jesus is referring to his disciples who could not cast out the demon from the boy. In fact, the nearest focus in the previous verse is the reference to Jesus' disciples who could not cast out the demon. That's the nearest focus that's just been talked about. And then Jesus is responding to that. But why would Jesus rebuke his disciples like this? This only makes sense as we go back to the beginning of this chapter. Luke chapter 9 verses 1 to 2 say this. And he That is, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So did Jesus only give his twelve apostles power and authority over some demons? No. Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons. And earlier in this chapter, they were exercising that power and authority over all demons throughout the region of Galilee. But now, for some reason, when this desperate father comes and begs Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon from his son, they cannot do it. And why is that? Jesus tells us why. Jesus says it's because they are a faithless and twisted generation. This phrase doesn't literally mean that his disciples were faithless in the sense that they had no faith. We know that's not the case because in Matthew's account, he says that they weren't able to cast out the demon because of their little faith. They had some faith, but it was a deficient faith. Another time that Jesus describes one of his disciples as having little faith is when Peter stepped out of the boat to walk on water with Jesus. But when he saw the winds, he was afraid, and his faith began to shrink away, and he began to sink. Had some faith to walk on water, got afraid, faith shrank, little faith. So in calling his disciples a faithless and twisted generation, he's not saying that they were completely devoid of faith. Rather, this phrase, faithless and twisted generation, is in reference to the wilderness generation after the Exodus, where God had delivered his people from slavery out of Egypt in over-the-top, miraculous ways. God sent ten plagues. He split the Red Sea. He rained manna from heaven. He burst forth water from a rock. He was visibly with them, present with them in the wilderness, in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The wilderness generation had ongoing, firsthand experience of these great miracles of God. And yet, somehow, some way, they continue to rebel against God by not believing in his word. And so they are referred to as a faithless and twisted generation. So, in essence, by Jesus calling his own disciples a faithless and twisted generation, he is saying that even though They have personally witnessed his miraculous work. How Jesus had cast out demons, healed the sick, leprous, paralyzed, and deformed, forgave sins, calmed a storm, even raised the dead. They saw that with their very own eyes. They were there. And even though they have personally participated in his miraculous work, how they also cast out demons, healed the sick, and participated in feeding the 5,000. After all of that firsthand personal experience they still have little faith in his word. Now on the surface, it may seem like there's no difference between the faith of the Desperate Father and the faith of the apostles. You know, they both had some level of faith. But there is a huge difference between them. The difference is the sheer amount of personal, first-hand experience that the apostles had with Jesus that the Desperate Father did not have. The Father was not traveling around with Jesus throughout his ministry in Galilee. The Father was not in the boat when Jesus calmed the violent storm. The Father was not with Jesus when he raised the dead. But the apostles were. The apostles were. They saw it over and over and over again. The apostles had every reason in the world to believe Jesus at his word, and yet they still had such little faith. That was the difference between the two. As Jesus will later make clear to his disciples, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. They were given so much, and yet they still had such little faith. And in this particular instance, even though Jesus had told them that he had given them his power and authority over all demons, they were not trusting in his word. In Mark's parallel account, we're told that some of the religious scribes are present in the crowd, arguing with the disciples. So like Peter, who began to fear and sink when he saw the wind, perhaps the disciples began to fear and shrink back in faith when they experienced the religious leaders arguing with them. Or perhaps after a previously successful ministry tour where the apostles were casting out demons, they began to think that they had power and authority in and of themselves to do it. And Mark's parallel account again tells us of their lack of prayer, So perhaps they mistakenly thought that they could cast out the demons themselves without depending on God in prayer. We're not exactly sure what the disciples were thinking, but all we know is what Jesus tells us. They were acting like the wilderness generation that experienced great miracles of God firsthand and yet constantly disbelieved God's word. They were acting with little faith. They were acting like Jesus never gave them his authority over all demons. Or if he did, like his word was no different than anybody else's. And listen again to what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? You can begin to feel the exasperation of Jesus' rebuke in the word, Oh. If someone ever starts a sentence to you by, Oh. You better better be careful what's coming out afterwards. He's not saying this in an emotionless way, but he's obviously bothered by his disciples' lack of faith. And when he says, How long am I to be with you? it's a hint that Jesus' time is almost up. His sights are set on Jerusalem to accomplish redemption for sinners in his death and resurrection, but afterwards, He knows that his mission of proclaiming the gospel, gathering believers into local churches, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded would be continued by his apostles. But they're nowhere near ready. Look at them. Such little faith. They're acting like the faithless and twisted generation in the wilderness. They're not ready. And when he says, How long am I to bear with you? This is probably startling for many of us because we oftentimes cannot imagine Jesus ever saying these words to his disciples, and by implication, him saying these words to us. Our picture of Jesus is often a person who never gets frustrated or angry, who never rebukes or says a harsh word. We can imagine Jesus saying these things to the religious hypocrites, but surely he would never respond this way to his own disciples. You know, let me be clear. Jesus never sinfully gets frustrated or angry. Jesus never sinfully rebukes or says a harsh word, but he does get frustrated and angry. He does rebuke and say harsh words to his people. And if we read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, we won't be surprised at this one bit because that's how we see God talking to his people uh, at times. In fact, it's because God loves his people that he speaks to them this way. Because God loves his people, he hates anything that causes them harm and anything that leads them away from their highest good found in him alone. So at times he needs to say some harsh things. So we see God constantly warning, rebuking, and disciplining his people as a means of leading them to repentance of sin and faith in him once again. And he does this because he loves us. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't say a thing. He would just Let us go head first into our own condemnation. Yes, God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. If you're a Christian, God forgives and accepts you in Christ, but that doesn't mean that he's always pleased with you. He is not pleased when you get puffed up with pride. God is not pleased when you act like you're self-sufficient without him. God is not pleased when you live with bitterness and unforgiveness towards others. God is not pleased when you lie, gossip, and slander, unwilling to resolve your conflicts with your brother or sister face to face. Don't ever think that Jesus is okay with you when you choose to live in sin, and you choose to disobey, you choose to disbelieve his word. He's not okay with that. He is not pleased with that. And because he loves you, And because sin and unbelief are killing you, he will at times have a rebuke or harsh word for you. When I think about my own followership of Christ and my own discipling relationships, there were key moments when a brother or sister in Christ rebuked me or said some words that I felt like were overly harsh. But those were huge and necessary wake-up calls for me. And if you're a Christian... I'm sure you can recall those times in your life as well when God sent a brother or a sister to say to you something that you were perhaps initially offended by, but it was exactly what you needed to hear to grow in your fellowship of Christ. And though it was hard to hear in the moment, as you look back, you're thankful that they had the courage to love you enough to say that to you. Now let me just add a couple clarifying notes. First, if you think that you love people too much to speak the truth to them, then that's not love. At least not if you believe that God is love because that's not how God loves. If that's you, then you love yourself more than you love that other person. You love your comfort more than being, uh, more than being willing to enter into an awkward, difficult conversation to help your brother or sister see what they need to see in order to mature in their followership of Christ. You love yourself more than you love them. So don't fool yourself into thinking, I'm not saying anything because I really love them. Second, if you think you love people so much because you speak the truth to them without any filter, then that's not love either. That's selfishly venting what's on your chest and leaving that person in complete shambles with no help to pick up the pieces. Truth used as a weapon is not redemptive at all. Truth, not spoken in love, ceases to be truth. It's no longer truth because it's so twisted and bent by our emotions and our own agendas that are less than what is good for that person. We convince ourselves saying, I really love this person, but it's so twisted by our own agenda that it's no longer helpful for them. It's no longer even loving and good for them. Going back, as we look at Jesus' rebuke of his disciples, you know, on on one level, it's startling. But on another level, this should be greatly comforting to us. You know, when we read the book of Acts, perhaps we're tempted to see the apostles as these super Christians. But in many ways, they were just like you and me. Despite all that they've seen and experienced and even participated in, they're still struggling to believe Jesus at his word. Yet the apostles were entrusted with proclaiming the gospel and being Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. If you feel like you're nowhere ready to participate in Jesus' great commission, then you're in good company. Just look at these apostles. They were not ready. Look at the 12 apostles in this passage, and then look at the apostles in the book of Acts. They look like two totally different groups of people. One group was rebuked for their lack of faith. One group was renowned for their lives of faith. But they're the same group of people. So what in the world happened to them? In essence, Jesus didn't leave them. You know, this wasn't some hit and run kind of rebuke. But Jesus was committed to them. Although Jesus rebukes them here, he does not abandon them. But he leans in. He invests even more in them which we'll continue to see later in this passage and throughout the rest of the gospel account. And as Jesus stayed with them, and as they stayed with Jesus, they became more and more like him. And you see what they became throughout the book of Acts. And what great comfort that is for us, wherever we are right now. But for now, Jesus patiently bears with his disciples great forgetfulness and little faith. And he asked the desperate father to bring his son to him. Verse 42 to the beginning of verse 43 then say this. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. As the boy was being brought to Jesus, the demon tried to do some final harm to the boy in similar ways as before. It was the demon's last ditch effort to stop the boy from being brought to Jesus. But it was unsuccessful. And in an anticlimactic way, Luke just says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. And it all happened so fast. Jesus simply says the word, and the demon is gone, the boy is healed, and the father is rejoicing now with his restored son in his arms. Verse 43 then tells us the effect of Jesus restoring the boy. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The word majesty also means greatness or the quality of being unsurpassed. Even in what seemed like such a disappointing and hopeless situation with this demon-possessed boy that none of Jesus' disciples could do anything about. After Jesus so effortlessly restored the boy, everyone saw and was astonished at the majesty or the greatness of God. They saw that Jesus is greater than his disciples. He's greater than the demon. He's greater than the whole hopeless situation at hand. No person, no demon, no situation, no problem can ever surpass what Jesus can do. But he surpasses them, he greatly surpasses them all. Of course, for many of us, the problem is not that we don't already know that. We know that. As believers in Jesus Christ, that's what we confess. The problem is that our troubles oftentimes seem greater than Jesus. And in the moment, when you're sinking and beginning to feel waves hurl at you, all of our focus goes to the water that we're drinking in. And in those moments, it's very difficult to see that Jesus walks on that water and that Jesus stills those waves. It's very difficult to believe that Jesus is greater than our problems. Easy to believe after it's done. The boy is restored. Hard to believe in the moment. In essence, this is what this whole passage is all about. Believe in Jesus when, even when it's difficult to believe. So all the more, that's why we need to constantly rehearse and be reminded that Jesus is the most high God, infinitely greater than anything in all his creation and matchless in every way. We need to constantly be rehearsing that so that when those troubles come, we're not grasping for faith that we never held before. It wasn't just conceptual faith before, but we were already rehearsing this. I know this deep into my heart that he is greater than all these things. And when those troubles come, we can begin to see the sun behind the clouds a little bit more clearly. You know, very practically, some ways that we can constantly remind ourselves of the greatness of God is to listen to songs that exalt the greatness of God. Don't just listen to songs that tell God how much you're going to do for him. I mean, there's a place for that. I'm not saying there's not. But listen to songs that exalt how great is our God. Pray prayers that praise the greatness of God. Spend time with people who will point you to the greatness of God. Share with others how you experience the greatness of God in whatever you're going through. I was so encouraged hearing our sister share that testimony earlier. And I hope all of us were and are because we're reminded of the greatness of God. Also, one of the most important ways we can remind ourselves of the greatness of God is simply to regularly gather together as a church for Sunday celebration and prayer gatherings. Where from start to finish, God's word leads us to see and respond to the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. If God is small in our lives, then our faith in him will easily be swallowed up by other things, fear of man, desire for pleasure, our own self-sufficiency. But if God is big, if God is great in our lives, then even when difficulties come, our faith in him will not be engulfed by our feelings and circumstances. Rather, our faith will be fortified in the fire. Our faith will be developed through the difficulties. So even as we recognize the deficiencies in our our own faith right now, may we not get discouraged, but let's do all we can to fix our eyes on the majesty or the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to help us to believe in him even when it's difficult to believe. So the desperate father, the deficient disciples, and third, the difficult truth. The rest of verse 43 to verse 45 say this. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So as the crowd is marveling at the majesty of God, Jesus has some very important private words for his disciples. Jesus tells them, let these words sink into your ears. Where in the original language, you is emphatic. So it it reads more literally, you put these words into your ears. He obviously wants them to remember what he's about to say. This phrase was essentially a Hebrew way of saying, memorize this. Evidently, Jesus wants them to listen very carefully to what he's about to say to the point of committing it to memory and he says the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men this is the second time that jesus has foretold his death earlier in this chapter jesus told his disciples the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised but here in the second time of foretelling his death jesus provides a bit more information First, he says that he will be delivered into the hands of of men, meaning that God will deliver him to be killed, even though sinful people will carry out the execution. Jesus wants his disciples to know that when they see him later crucified, that it was all according to God's sovereign plan for the redemption of sinners. God delivered him to be killed. Second, he says that he will be delivered into the hands of men, meaning that even though it will be the Jewish elders, chief priests, and scribes who conspire to kill him and the Roman government who officially executes him, the guilty parties are not just the Jewish leaders in the Roman government, but all of sinful humanity. In other words, because all have sinned and deserve God's righteous wrath for our sins, we're all responsible for the death of Christ. We are responsible for the death of Christ on the surface this seems like a big downer in light of such a joyful experience of this boy being restored and returned to his father so why would jesus not only mention this but emphasize this to his disciples when everyone else is marveling at him this becomes especially puzzling when verse 45 says that it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it meaning that god concealed the full meaning of what jesus was telling them so that they could not fully understand So why would Jesus tell his disciples something with such great emphasis and simultaneously conceal the full meaning of it to them? Let me first say that God is good, and this is not some sort of trick that he's playing on his disciples. The fact that God reveals and conceals is not because he's playing games with us, but because he knows our hearts and when we're ready to fully understand something. If you're a Christian, my guess is that for many, you didn't become a Christian the very first time you heard the gospel probably not even the second or third time you heard the gospel. Even though you understood the words that were spoken in that gospel, you didn't quite get it. And if you grew up in the church, perhaps you heard the gospel hundreds of times. You might have even memorized it and could even recite it when it was preached week in and week out. But my guess is that for many, it wasn't until later that you truly understood the gospel and personally trusted in Jesus Christ. And when you look back on your life, And at what point God lifted the veil for you to fully understand and trust in Jesus? My guess is that for many, you can now say that it was God's perfect time. And what he allowed you to go through beforehand has profoundly shaped who you are today and how God is using you for his good purposes. We also see examples in scripture where God tells his people with great emphasis what he's going to do and yet simultaneously conceals the full meaning of it until the perfect time comes. For example, Scripture talks about the last days and the end times before Christ's second coming, the resurrection of of the dead, the final judgment where people will enter either endless punishment in hell or endless joy in the new heavens and new earth. The Old Testament prophets talk about it. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. John talks about it in the book of Revelation. A lot of people talk about it in Scripture. But at the same time, The full meaning of the end times is still concealed from us because we're just not there yet. But just like everything in the Old Testament was fully revealed in Jesus' first coming, everything about the last days and final judgment and the new heavens and new earth will be fully revealed in Jesus' second coming. And when that day finally comes, we'll all be saying to one another and to ourselves, of course, God has been literally telling this to us for millennia. We didn't get it back then. But now we know in full, on that day, that's when the veil will be fully lifted and all will be fully revealed. Now let's get back to this passage. For the disciples, they th- the thought of God delivering Jesus to be killed at the hands of the sinful men was completely outside of their paradigm for the Christ. In their minds, the Christ would be a conquering king who would liberate his people from their oppressors, not a suffering servant who would be rejected by his own people and hang naked to die on a cross. That was, you know, even, even as Jesus was telling them, they get at face value what his words mean, but they have no conception of what Jesus is really talking about. They just cannot imagine it, and they wouldn't understand the full meaning until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew's parallel account says that the disciples were greatly distressed, which means that they grasped something of what Jesus was saying, and it totally stressed them out. And so they were afraid to ask him any any more about it. If even partial understanding was so hard for them to believe, full understanding would have been totally too much for them to handle at this moment. But this is the second time that Jesus is foretelling his death to his disciples, and he will later tell them a third time. So why does Jesus keep telling them something that he knows that they won't fully understand yet? And not only that, why does he emphasize it to the point of essentially telling them, memorize what I'm telling you, even though I know that you don't get it yet? Because Jesus is preparing the disciples to believe in him, even when it's difficult to believe. If it was difficult for the disciples to believe Jesus' word to cast out a demon, then their faith will be dashed to pieces when they see Jesus crucified. But Jesus telling them what would happen before it happened these three times was meant to be an anchor for their faith, especially when all would be revealed after his resurrection. They would have these words memorized and they would remind each other saying, Jesus' death and resurrection was not an accident or a hiccup in God's will. But Jesus told us exactly what would happen And even though we didn't quite understand what he was saying at that time, now that it's happened, we know that it all happened according to God's good and perfect will. And they would be emboldened to continue to follow him. Even though they didn't fully understand it yet, Jesus called them to memorize this difficult truth so that their faith would be bolstered once it all came to pass. And this was not only for the 12 apostles and the first century Christians but this is for all of us who are followers of Christ today as we hear Jesus emphasizing to his disciples what will happen to him at the cross may we know with certainty that God is completely sovereign and good over the death of his son for the forgiveness of sinners and if God is sovereign over even the cross how much more is he sovereign and good in all the highs and lows of our lives even right now So no matter what you're going through right now, whether that's anxiety and depression, financial difficulty, relational conflict, stress from work, struggles with sin, struggles with singleness, marriage problems, trouble having children, or anything else we could possibly experience in a world broken by sin. As we see God's sovereign plan come to pass in Jesus' death on the cross to redeem wretched sinners like us, may we be encouraged and emboldened to believe in Jesus right now, even when it's difficult to believe. Here's the life application. First, have your, have your disappointments in Jesus, have your disappointments in Jesus' disciples led you closer or farther away from Jesus himself. Persist in believing that Jesus is at work in his disciples, including you. You know, the unfortunate reality is that none of Jesus' disciples are fully sanctified yet. And all of us will disappoint and hurt one another even though we don't want to. But rather than keeping a record of wrongs, getting bitter, and living with unforgiveness, which pulls us farther and farther away from Jesus, let's persistently run to Jesus in all of our disappointments and hurts, believing that he is committed to sanctifying his disciples, including you, and living in light of Jesus', Jesus perfection rather than Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples' imperfections. Second, how have you exhibited Being a faithless and twisted generation, not believing in God's word despite all the personal ways that you've experienced his faithfulness. Repent and recall all the ways you've experienced the majesty or the greatness of God. You know, it's easy to be hard on the disciples in this passage, but just know that we often do the very same thing, constantly forgetting and disbelieving who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. And rather than brush that off as no big deal, As we read what Jesus says to his disciples in this passage, may we take our faithlessness as seriously as Jesus takes it and repent for our sin. And may we prepare ourselves to act in faith each day by regularly remembering all the ways that we've experienced the greatness of God in our lives. And third, who can you intentionally help to believe in Jesus even when it's difficult to believe? Pray for wisdom, opportunities, and love to speak to them more intentionally about Jesus. Still, even as you speak about Jesus with others, just know that even like the disciples in today's passage, they may not fully understand what you're talking about. But stick with them, pray for them, pray with them, and perhaps one day you'll have the privilege of seeing their eyes open wide as they finally understand and believe in full that Jesus alone is their Lord and Savior. So once again, the one thing for today is believe in Jesus even when it's difficult to believe. If you're able, can we all stand as we respond to God's word together? <clears throat> you know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we're so glad that you're here today. And as you hear this good news of Jesus Christ, that we even though we are sinners before God who deserve punishment for our sins, that God loves us still, that he sent Jesus Christ to live and die in our place to take our penalty for our sin and then resurrect to give us new life. That if we repent of our sins and believe in him, we can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. As you're hearing that difficult truth today, perhaps you need to begin by just asking God if that's true Help me to know that's true. You know, I believe enough that I'm here to even sit through a sermon, but I'm not sure I believe that much yet. But if that is true, God, help my unbelief. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let's begin to remember how we have experienced the greatness of God, the majesty of God throughout our lives. Think about when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ and how everything else began to shrink away. But years later we find ourselves seeing our problems as so much bigger and jesus begins to shrink away let's repent let's ask god for forgiveness for ways that we have been so forgetful despite all that we've experienced let's remember how he's been so faithful specific incidents incidences how he's answered our prayer how he's allowed us to participate in his miraculous work and seeing more lost people being transformed and let's begin to ask him, God, again, help me to believe. Help me to be reminded how great you are. Help me to put my problems into perspective rather than allowing my situations and my feelings to engulf me. Help me to see that you walk over the waves that they are not they don't surpass you. They don't cover you. You still them with your a gentle word. Help me to see who you are so that I can rightly live in light of who you are, not wrongly live in light of everything else. And let's begin to ask him for that help to believe in Jesus again, even when it's difficult to believe. So let's spend some time personally responding to God's word and personal prayer. Let's pray.